Hi folks, and welcome to the Field Guides. Bill Michalek here. We're starting off this month's episode differently, because we've never done an episode like this before, and we wanted to give you some background. Back in February, when the coronavirus pandemic was just getting started here in the States, and the words lockdown and social distancing weren't yet in our everyday vocabulary, Steve and I received a message from the Roger Tory Peterson Institute. That name might ring a bell for you. Roger Tory Peterson was arguably the premier nature artist of the 20th century, and he's considered by many to be the father of the modern field guide. Steve and I, along with most of our nature-loving friends, and we're betting many of you, have loved and used numerous Peterson guides. And the institute that bears his name exists to honor and continue Peterson's work, fostering appreciation and protection of the natural world. To say that we were honored to have the institute staff want to collaborate with us would be a tremendous understatement. Steve and I were finally able to visit the Institute this past summer. We got a tour of Peterson's archives, getting to view some of his original artworks, his study skins, and even some of his personal gear. Getting to see his binoculars in yellow rubber boots was a highlight for me. We spoke at length with the staff about how we could communicate their work to you, our listener. What came out of those conversations is this special two-part episode. In part one, Steve and I speak with Arthur Pearson, the Institute's CEO, Arthur fills us in on Peterson's background, the influence of his work, and how the Institute uses that work to bridge the natural world, art, and conservation. And in part two, we get outside to hike the Institute's woods with Tuan Leanders, field guide author and senior director of science and conservation at the Institute. Tuan shares a bunch of stories from his amazing background, from growing up in the Netherlands, to studying the rainforests of Central America, to catching ornery spiny soft-shell turtles in the post-industrial urban landscape of Jamestown, the small city in southwest New York that Roger Tory Peterson called his home and where the Institute is located today. As you listen, keep in mind that Steve and I had to have our masks on for portions of these episodes, so we may sound a bit muffled. And in part two, we had to deal with some light rain and nearby road construction. But audio difficulties aside, we're excited to share these conversations with you. Part one begins with Steve and I walking up to the doors of the Institute on a rainy August morning. Enjoy. Wrong door. <laughs> All right, good morning, Arthur. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having us today. Welcome, welcome. So we should ask, what should we do about masks? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we practice safety first, but in large open spaces here in the museum, uh, as long as we have six feet, then we're cool. So if you're All comfortable, right. if we're comfortable, we can safely do it. All right, so I, I'm <laughs> going to take off my mask. It does make it a little So I'm the, sure the audience can now hear the difference. Folks, as you uh, can probably tell, especially if you're listening to this episode, uh, far in the future, uh, we are still in the middle of the COVID pandemic, so masks are a necessity. Although this is the first one we started masked, so we probably started sounded a little muffled. Yeah, I, <laughs> we've, we, yeah, we've never done that before. Yeah, we've been outside. Yeah. So as I, I said in my introduction, folks, we are going to be learning about field guys today and Roger Tory Peterson. And longtime listeners may know that we recently did an, an episode on field guides with the In Defense of Plants podcast. Mm -hmm. That was really more just of like our favorite field guides. Sure, and we didn't we didn't see any royalties from that episode. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we got to talk to Matt about that. We did. <laughs> but Matt did do a follow up uh, with a researcher that looked into the history of field guides, and I would greatly recommend uh, listeners check that out because I've rarely listened to an interview with someone who is as passionate and as interesting to listen to about their field of study. Mm -hmm. She was great. Wow. 
I wish I could remember her name right now. <laughs> but uh, we'll put that in the episode notes. We'll put links to that. Right. So Matt's episode was better than ours for once. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's why we're doing this one to outdo him. So That's right. Yeah. No so, pressure. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> So in my research for this episode, I did find that Publishers Weekly, they refer to field guides as a hard sell. So yeah, really, believe it or not, because most field guides apparently in the publishing world don't have a massive audience, but there are the all-stars like the Sibley Guide to Birds. I remember I was working at a nature center when that was released Mm -hmm. and that was pretty crazy, the people coming in looking for that. Because that even, if you remember when it first came out, that's a big book. It wasn't really a field guide. Oh, it's the one to all the birds of North America. It's not just their smaller eastern and then smaller western. Right. They eventually split it up. But when that came out in October of 2000, 2000, in less than three years, it sold 600,000 copies, which is pretty rare for a field guide. But people that do have field guides, how many field guides do you have? Uh, I mean... it, it's tough because I've split them up throughout my house. So I have a section for all my bird ones, a section a for lot. all my plant ones. It's it's over 20 for sure. I don't right. know. Yeah. yeah, me too. It's, it's probably well over 20. Arthur, yeah. I mean, do you have a lot of field guides? That's about the same number, yeah. 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 So I actually did find some research that said casual birders have an average of two field guides each, which hmm. I didn't find to be a whole lot. But then skilled birders own an average of 14.3 field guides. Holy cow. <laughs> So I don't know how they define skilled versus casual, but (laughs) I guess that makes us skilled in, I don't know, some areas. I guess. (laughs) It makes you expert. You guys are at 20. You're way above the average. But field guides definitely, I think, for people that are passionate about natural history, they make an impact. Uh, The research I came across was full of stories like the naturalist author, Jake Page. He talks about how he loved his golden guide to the birds so much that it fell to pieces and then but doesn't everyone's fall to pieces that golden guide specifically (laughs) (laughs) there's something to do with the production of it (laughs) and then former poet laureate robert haas uh, he has a poem called letter and he complains in that poem that his wife's absence on a trip has taken all the fun out of life especially because she took their flower guide with her Mm, that's awesome he doesn't have access to the flower guide now do you guys know what is commonly felt to be the first popular field guide? I'm going to guess it's not Roger Torrey Peterson's It's book. not Roger Torrey Peterson's, no. So there was one back in 1895. I've got to go back in my annals here. Is that, <laughs> wow. Am I on the right You're track? You're close. Okay. In 1889, Florence Merriam, she eventually became Florence Merriam Bailey. Now, I posted about oh. her mm-hmm. uh, a couple years ago, and we got a huge response. Yeah. So this woman, she's, you, she's credited with what's considered the first popular field guide. It was called Birds Through an Opera Glass. And at that time, people did not use binoculars. An opera glass. Right. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. she had the idea of, hey, I can take an opera glass and use that to get a closer look at birds. Wow. So this book became popular. And this lady, folks, look into her. Uh, she eventually married a, a prominent naturalist and official in the biological survey. And together, they took tons of trips to the American West, uh, she, they wrote extensively on flora and fauna. She published nearly 100 journal articles, 10 books. She was the first woman fellow of the American Ornithologists' Union. Wow. She was like this badass scientist in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Just a real inspiration. Now, I love that, too, because the history of the American conservation movement is mostly the history of men. Right. And there are all these women who oftentimes are footnotes or they're Mrs. So-and-so. <laughs> right. And I love the fact that there's this woman out there yep. who really is the progenitor of it all. And right. And thank you for surfacing that. Yeah, when you, when you pick up a field guide, we can yeah. thank 
her, Florence yeah. Merriam, eventually Florence Merriam Bailey. But we're here today to talk about a man, Roger Tory Peterson. And one researcher I found in doing the research for this episode said, in this century, no one has done more to promote an interest in living creatures than Roger Tory Peterson. He's really considered the inventor of the modern field guide. Right. And we'll get into to why that is. So in 1934, he published his classic, A Field Guide to the Birds. Now I'm hoping that there are listeners out there that know about Roger Tory Peterson, but I'm betting there's a lot of people that don't know who he is, or maybe they just have an idea mm-hmm. of who he is. I'm sure many people who listen to our podcast know about the Peterson Field Guide series, but maybe they don't know why it's called the Peterson Field Guide series. So today we're gonna to be taking kind of a deep dive into who he was, what he's all about, what goes on here at his institute in Jamestown. And Arthur, if, if you could introduce yourself to the audience and kind of give us an idea of a little bit of your background and then give us an idea of what goes on here at the Institute. Sure. I'm the new CEO. I've been here since uh, March. Uh, again, Arthur Pearson. I'm the new CEO of the Roger Tory Peterson Institute. So speaking of COVID, my first official act on my first official day was to close the museum. <laughs> and we've been closed or we were closed for a total of four months. So not the ideal way to start a new gig. So you've just well, been kicking back and relaxing. This just, you know, hanging back, looking at field guides. Hey, this stuff's kind of cool after all. Yeah. But we have been open now for about a month and it's been awesome to invite and welcome back our audience to this amazing building, to this amazing man, to this amazing history, and to share these stories. And that's really the reason that I came here. It's the nexus for me. Uh, so my, my background is I spent a lot of years in philanthropy, and I helped uh, nonprofit organizations in the arts and conservation and museum collections help build their capacities and to do more and more effectively and in richer and wonderful ways. So for me, this is a great synthesis of all those passions. So I worked in nonprofits. Yeah. So you're the guy that comes in and tells them, guys, what you're doing is great, but you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for reinforcing that about philanthropy. Uh, there is a hubris to philanthropy. I will acknowledge that. But I think in the better circumstances, it really is a partnership, right? We're all in this together trying to accomplish fundamentally the same goals. We're just bringing different resources. Funders bring resources. And just because you bring resources doesn't mean that you always have the best ideas. Right. We rely upon those practitioners in the field. Does this sound like a pitch? <laughs> I'm not trying to be an apologist for the field, but no. I think, but that's what a lot of nonprofits need. Well, yeah, I mean that's a whole you know episode in and of itself. But again, in the best circumstances, we're all bringing our various skills, expertises to make the world a little bit better, more effectively, richer, however best we can. So my passion, you know, is kind of all over the map a little bit, but with a focus on arts, with a focus on conservation, with a focus on museum collections, for me, this was a synthesis of all those things, right? And so anyone who's in the conservation field knows the name Roger Tory Peterson, and I'm still in the process of learning about him, which is fun and exciting for me. So uh, a little more background about the Institute and why it's here. So Roger Tory Peterson actually is a Jamestown native. He grew up here, and this is where he had his seminal experiences as a little kid. And there's a story that he's talked about, there's books written about it. He was just out in the field, you know, he loved moths, he liked birds, he liked everything about nature. And he saw this bird on the side of a tree, and he thought, that's interesting, it doesn't look like it's moving. Is it dead, is it whatever? And as an 11-year-old kid, he went up and he touched it. 
Wow. And the bird exploded <laughs> off the tree in this, in this flutter, and it happened to be a northern flicker, you know, with those great <laughs> golden wings. And from that moment, he said, he He's was hooked. absolutely hooked. There yeah. was no other career for him in the world. So that was the nature side of it. And then he also had a penchant for artistry. So uh, Jamestown back in the day was a hub for Swedish furniture manufacturing. And his father worked for one of those companies. And he got a job as a young person as an illustrator, as a painter of furniture. So he had art skills and he was employed doing that. So he had these twin passions of art and nature and eventually earned his way to New York Art School and put those two things together. He was a, one of the founding members of the Bronx Bird Club and that was just that great mix of ornithologists who all went on to exceptional careers. He was a seminal part of that. He took his art skills. But what they learned through all of these experiences was that there was no field guide that was available for them at the time to help identify birds in the field. There were academic texts, oftentimes without um, images. There were earlier guides by people who used opera glasses, of which they might not have been aware. Right. <laughs> I really don't know. But we really need a tool to help us in the field and to help other folks in the field because he's had an instinct that there was a gap, there was a void. People needed guidance to be able to see literally what was in their own backyards. So in a very simple rudimentary way, he just basically almost cartoon sketched a number of birds and he presented them in a way so that you could easily identify them in the field. They weren't meant to be exact replicas, they weren't meant to be fine art per se, they were illustrations in the best sense of the world to help people see and identify in the field. And in 1934, he got Houghton Mifflin to agree to publish this book. And this is a little bit crazy. This is a young kid with no real background or experience, no credentials to speak of, in the height of the Depression. And they were going to put a $2 price tag wow. on this book. And it's like, people don't have two bucks to spare for food, let alone a bird guide, right? Mm -hmm. Within two weeks, 2,000 copies sell out. Wow. Hmm. We might be on to something yeah. here, right? Mm -hmm. And so from there, he went through a succession of field guides over the years, and he got to be a better and better illustrator slash artist. And when I say slash artist, because I think you guys probably know, it's an interesting conversation within the art field. Are you an illustrator? Or are you an artist? Is one good? Is one bad? Is right. one art, mm -hmm. not art? I think there's a lot more nuance and interest in that conversation, but over the course of his life, he went from being, if you want, an ex expert illustrator to a f being a fine artist. But even his illustrations, I think, really elevate to the level of fine art. And we have some other good scholarship which helps pinpoint him as an artist as well as an illustrator in the history of nature art and art in general. So mm -hmm. let me pause there and take a breath and do you have any questions? <laughs> well, I was going to say like one of the, the purposes of the Institute here is to right. expose people to his art because right. you have a lot of his art on display in the archives here. So when we were initially contacted by your staff yeah. about possibly doing a podcast, Steve and I folks, we were lucky enough to come down uh, a month or two ago, and we got to go into the archives and see the cover of Peterson's Mexican Guide to Birds, mm -hmm. very lovingly taken care of mm -hmm. uh, and preserved. But then just hanging on the walls here is his artwork, artwork as well. Mm -hmm. So that's a great thing for people to be able to come here and see is his field guide pages, his covers. 
presented as fine art because it, it really is. There's a whole rich world of collecting botanical illustrations, right? right? And other kinds of illustrations, medical illustrations. Illustration has really elevated itself to fine art. That's why people collect those things today. So again, I think that's a whole another conversation in terms of art versus illustration. But to your point about this being the repository for Roger Torrey Peterson's collection, it is. That's why this building is here. Again, honoring the fact that Roger Torrey Peterson is a hometown kid, there are, I think, I think Jamestown, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Here's a factoid for everybody. I think that Jamestown has more Presidential Medal of Freedom recipients per capita than anywhere else in the world. Oh, we yeah. have two. So we have Roger <laughs> Torrey Peterson, and who's the other one? I don't know. Really? You? <laughs> Not yet. Uh, Lucille Ball. Oh, oh, really? I should have okay, known that. Okay, so I love Lucy, right? So we have yeah. the National Comedy Center sort of as one way to honor that tradition. We have the Roger Torrey Peterson <laughs> Institute to anchor and honor this other extraordinary uh, legacy. Wow. So that's the reason that this building is here. And it was built with the intention of harboring Peterson's collection. Yeah. So we have, by an order of magnitude, the largest, most comprehensive collection of Peterson's original artwork his films, he made many films, he evolved that over the course of his career along with slides and photographs, along with all of his manuscript papers, etc. So this really is the place, if you want to know about this father of the modern field guy, this is the place where we have his entire archive. And it is open to the public, like people can come? And... It is open to the public. Um, the archive is available for researchers, scholars, etc. There have been several biographies written about Peterson. We're a go-to resource. Anyone who's trying to understand the history, evolution of field guide art, this is sort of Mecca, the mother yeah. load we have here. <laughs> and then the challenge for us, along with any other archival repository, is we have way more in storage than you can possibly show at any one time. Mm -hmm. So we have Jane Johnson, our director of museum operations, who does a wonderful job in curating the collection in exhibitions. She the has year. the sweet job. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she does, she gets to play in the archive and pick and choose. Right. And, and, and the lovely thing is really about helping us to tell the story of Roger. Yeah. So the one that we have now, which is really exciting, we have the work of Roger Torrey Peterson hanging alongside the bronze bird sculptures of Stefan Savides. So more and more what we want to have is the artwork of Roger Torrey Peterson in conversation with contemporary artists, and what does that tell us about them as artists, them as naturalists, um, the importance of art in helping us to see the natural world? Because at the end of the day, I think that's what all nature artists aspire to do, but certainly Roger Torrey Peterson did it with a huge degree of intentionality. Right. He could have done the guides in lots of different ways, but mm -hmm. he carefully crafted the artwork, and I'm gonna call it artwork even though it's illustration, but he crafted the artwork in such a way that you would be able to see the natural world in a way that if you didn't have the guide, you really wouldn't be able to identify it, name it, really see it. To put it another way, the field guide really is a window to the natural world. Right. I think all of us, even today, we look outside and like, I can look out there out of windows right now and I can see 50 different green plants, okay? <laughs> I'm not a botanist, right? Mm -hmm. I see sort of a wall of green. Yeah. A field guide helps me begin to discern shape, size, color, etc. Now, through the guide, I better see and understand the natural world, which again is 
the value of that original field guide back in 1934. I do think it's really interesting uh, referring to his illustrations as artwork because, for example, when you open up an anatomy textbook, there's right. going to be diagrams drawn, and they'll be very nicely drawn, but it's clearly a diagram. It's not like a painting of like a dancer or something, you know, because right. um, there's, there's a, you know, you're trying to be pragmatic with your drawing. You're trying to make it point out the specific things that, that need to be pointed out for it to actually be like a reference to be educational. Yeah. And his are like that. His point out the specific things that you need to look for on diff these different species, but they're also, they are also beautiful. You know, it's not just a diagram of a bird. It's, it's beyond that. So. That's kind of the, the heart of the debate between is it art is it illustration yeah because his artwork had a very practical purpose and that was to give people that window into the natural world to translate what they're seeing into something they could understand and in the research I came across that he developed the Peterson identification system right so can you give us an idea of what that what that means Sure. So he presented birds in a way that they're all in profile, oh. facing the same way. And rather than in traditional ornithological manuals of the day where you group by families, he grouped by birds that look alike. So when you see something with a crest, ooh, I go to the page with the eight birds with crest, mm -hmm. right. and I see color, shape, posture, whatever it happens to be, he puts like with like. And then on top of that, he has these little arrows that help you focus in on the key distinguishing features. Right, and in field guides previously, I know looking at um, Florence Merriam Bailey's Birds of the Opera Glass, many of those pictures were just drawings of the birds, and that was it right. with no guidance right. of this is what to look for with this species. Exactly or, right. These are the things to look for, the field marks. Like now, that's just pretty common and right. do it and we, we have all incorporated the Peter Peterson system into our way of looking at the world right. which again mm -hmm. the system worked and all the field guides that have come after you read about how they structured their guides we have to do it different we have to build by and large most actually do some fundamental variation on the Peterson system because it's still just they're arcs. all standing on his shoulders <laughs> they, right, they, yeah. are, they are you know there's a there's a scholar here called John Boone J O N Boone and he actually talks about the illustration from another perspective and I I just came across this recently that um, it, there's uh, it's I think it's pronounced Haiga H A I G A which is the visual representation that goes along with a haiku. So if you look at Japanese artwork, you're gonna see a very simple image along with this very spare poem, and it's the relationship between these two. And together, what you're trying to do is provide the most amount of information with the least amount of stuff, whether it's words or drawing. Mm -hmm. And he likens Peterson's field guide art to that. And Peterson talks about that. He could have put in more detail, he could have put in nuance, he could have put in shadows, but that would actually detract right. from the identification, the power mm -hmm. of the identification. But for me, that doesn't make it less art. For me, it actually makes it more artful because that's really hard to do. Right. Robert Bateman, who was sort of the next generation of artists and is acknowledged as one of our nation's greatest nature artists, he said, I tried field guide art. No, thank you. It's too hard. It's a different thing, and it's, it's a whole his own different skill animal. and yeah. artistry in right. and of itself. So again, I'm kind of 
drinking the Roger Kool-Aid here, <laughs> but I think appropriately so. Number one, it's really good Kool-Aid. Yeah. But number two, that I think he really does deserve props as an artist and the fact that he was an illustrator does not detract from the fact that he was also an artist. Now there's, there's one thing that I wanted to talk about is prep for this episode, you know, for the audience's benefit. When Steve and I had been talking to Arthur and a fellow named Tuan we're going to meet a little later on, we were trying to find a format, what could we talk about, and what we kind of landed on was that I was going to go and research field guides, field guides as conservation tools, and one of the things that I found out is there's not a ton of research on field guides, uh, especially within the past 10 years or so. I think part of that has to do with the move away from the printed field guide to more app-driven right, field right, guides. Right. And that may come up in our conversation. But one of the points that never really occurred to me but seems kind of obvious, there was a, a paper in 2006 called How Do Published Field Guides Influence Interactions Between Amateurs and Professionals in Entomology? Hmm. So this was in the American Entomologist. And what they theorized is that in all these different areas of natural history, professionals, they start out as the main people in the field researching these species. And their main way of getting those species is through collecting. A field guide comes out like Peterson's or even we can go back to, to Bailey's field guide. And it opens the window to non-professionals going out into the field. But then they're also collecting. But what the field guide does is it kind of pushes them along, both professionals and non-professionals, to the point where you have a field guide, you don't need to be collecting all the time. And this paper I read, they were looking at tiger beetles because apparently around 2006, they said within the past five, five years, 15 field guides on, on tiger beetles had emerged. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of going through that at the time where you had all these new people going out into the field just trying to collect everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and professionals saying, whoa, there's too many people collecting. And then the, the newer people are saying, but you're collecting too all the time, so why can't we do that? And there was this evolution of, okay, when do we need to collect? It's not really necessary every time right now mm-hmm. um, to be collecting. And I know with ornithology, because you know at one time, shotgun ornithology, that was it. If you missed, it was a mystery, right? <laughs> yeah. That was the saying that I heard. Yeah. But with a field guide in your hand, yeah. you didn't need to have the bird in the hand because right. then you had your field guide. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was a really interesting point is that field guides help usher along. They bring in more than just professionals. And then it also moves people away from having to collect all the time to right. be removing specimens all the time. I just came up with a uh, really great analogy for our younger listeners. Actually, by this point, they could be my age or, or you know, yeah. up to 30 or so. But so if you guys remember the, uh, the game Pokemon, right? Yeah. The main yeah. character had to catch them all. And part of the reason that he did this was because he was working for Professor Oak or whatever professor, whatever game you're, you're playing, um, because they wanted to create a Pokedex, right? We're living in a post-Pokédex world, <laughs> and we don't need people going out and catching them all, like yeah. the main character had to do in that, in that game. So uh, I felt like <laughs> it kind of sounds like that. In well, a way. But they didn't have to kill the Pokémon to collect them. <laughs> they would just catch them in these little magical balls but that it, sucked them in. <laughs> it feeds into that, like, Pokémon Go, I feel is almost like the precursor to iNaturalist. <laughs> right. And now, yeah. 
Yeah. Like who doesn't have a camera in the field? Right. Almost everybody has a camera in the field these right. days. What was that new app that you were telling me about? That's not not iNaturalist, but um, Seek. Seek is that? Yeah, so that's Seek. like that's much more like Pokemon Go, right? Well, yeah, because it's yeah. it's powered by iNaturalist, but its its intention is for for younger people. But you open it up and it'll say, hey, based on your location, these ten plants and animals should be in your area. See if you can find them. Right. See if right. you can find a picture. Right. Yeah. That's an emerging trend within environmental education. It's the gamification of field guides. Oh work. yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, th I think that's why birders have gotten so it's got it become so popular because like birding's kind of like a sport, you know, oh, sure. whether whether or not whether or not you spend all that time <laughs> yeah. to appreciate a the cutthroat bird. sport sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. A year, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, right. And uh, you know, you have people that they're following all these like live updates of where people are seeing right. these birds pop up and they're like, "Oh my god, I got to get up to Niagara County or I got to, right. you know, right on the Pennsylvania border, this and rare species just popped up." And, with eBird now, you can see who yeah. is seeing what yeah. where almost really in real time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I would pick up a tool in your field guide about the interaction between professionals and amateurs. So with the advent of the Peterson Field Guide and the improvement of binoculars beyond opera glasses, yeah. uh, which I <laughs> love that, by the way. Um, so Audubon, prior to that time, had been doing a Christmas bird count. Right. So that extended yeah. for, remember, we used to go out and shoot birds on Christmas because that was fun to do. And someone said, hey, right. wait a minute, let's, in the spirit of the holiday, Frank Chapman. Yeah, not yeah. shoot yeah. them, but just count them, right? So that was sort of a clubby thing that they did, right? And But then with the field guide, all of a sudden, again, more people had access to that information. Democratizes roughly it. that point, all of a sudden, the amount of people in the field participating in that Christmas count just grew exponentially. Right. And as a result, the amount of data that we have, so that's how now Audubon can publish the 40 top birds in decline kind of thing because mm -hmm. they've got 80, 90, 100 years of data to say, hey folks, this is a crisis for us and yeah. now we have the data to prove it and that's driven mostly by amateurs right. in mm -hmm. the field collecting data without having to shoot it, you know, put a pin in it, whatever. Yeah. But again, the power of the field guide has, and I, I think they talk about this with Peterson too, not just the father of the modern field guide, but being an engine in the democratization of nature and really putting a big charge or spark into environmental awareness literally throughout the world. Right, right. That's a powerful thing. Again, it's not for nothing that this guy is the only artist naturalist to receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You know, it's, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things you have to kind of think, what does that really mean? But there aren't too many people who get it. It's a real special thing, right? Mm -hmm. I think we can agree upon that. but. It's just a big exclamation point that just how important he was to have received that kind of distinction. Yeah. Everyone should know his name, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Taught in every school. It's part of American history. <laughs> One more point about that, that yeah. study. They did go on to say that because of field guides, what eventually seems to happen is that what you were just speaking of, Arthur, things like data collection, field studies, Mm -hmm. of things like distribution, declining populations, where new species are, right. that can fall into the hands of what today we call citizen scientists, amateurs. Right. Right. And then professionals, they're going to dominate the more technical fields, things like spatial modeling, molecular studies, physiological adaptations, and conservation policy. So it allows the professionals to move into those areas where they're using all of the data that's being collected right. 
by mm -hmm. individuals. Yeah. But yeah. still, it's a great synthesis that one is not possible without the other. Right. All of the higher level stuff is fueled fundamentally by this wealth of data that is just now starting to flood folks. And in a way, we have this glut of information. And now, though, it puts a little more pressure on the yeah. academics and whatnot to go like, right. well, now we, what do we do with it, right? right. Which is great. That. I mean, there has been a move uh, into like big data science. Sure. So I feel like a lot of that data is probably really exciting now for people to work things with. Things like DNA and things like that. You Not just DNA. A lot of the stuff that's being being collected by uh, the Christmas bird count and sure. maps and, you know, yeah, th like those are really big scale. Globally. Yeah, big yeah. scale yeah. projects like that. So. But I come from Chicago, so the Field Museum has one of the largest collection of study skins. That's a pretty, mm. good, pretty good museum. It's a pretty good <laughs> museum. It's, it's yeah. right. But what I love is, you know, your big data, but now researchers can go in with you know, enhanced techniques and find out that because they've got 140 years worth of birds, right, from all over the world, that they now can plot that in response to climate change, songbirds are <laughs> shrinking in size. Right. You mm -hmm. know, this kind of stuff. And what does that tell us? So we have, again, this wealth of information that amateurs and professionals have been collecting, yeah. but mm -hmm. now we're just starting to still learn about the world, some fundamental things that we now have the capacity to do. I love that. Yeah. The, uh, the last point from that article it was interesting. They said the other thing that field guides do is they push the spread and the standardization, in quotes, of common names. Ah. Because <laughs> they said before field guides, typically professionals are just using Latin. <laughs> yeah. But as you get more amateurs coming in, they kind right. of demand. And I didn't realize this. There was a point where the American Ornithologists Union sat down mm -hmm. and decided on these standard common names of North American mm. birds. And they said this has happened in other fields as well. And it was, they had just done it with tiger beetles. They tried to get mm. representatives mm -hmm. and it was kind of this loose committee that they said, let's decide on what are the common names going to be mm -hmm. for most of the species that you're going to find in North America. Because otherwise, if no one kind of takes charge, it just goes off the rails yes. and you end up with multiple <laughs> common names for different species. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I encountered that here. So I'm a Midwest guy where we have American woodcocks, but here you have timber doodles. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> Most people still call them woodcocks. Yeah, I'll say. I, so we did an episode about uh, woodcocks and uh, I... I Kind of just to poke fun at that name that I've never used. I uh, I, we, we called it, um, I think we called the episode just like Timber Doodling or Bill something. Bill and Steve go Timber Doodling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because we have not, I mean, personally, I haven't used it, but uh, no. yeah. But you know, that's another, I mean, I'm sure you guys are going to do it, but now names are starting to change based on uh, the evolution of our ethics in the expansion yes, of, you know. Right? So there was Absolutely. a bird that was recently renamed because it was named for an individual who's Past. Past beliefs no longer <laughs> jive with contemporary understandings. Right. Or that's, and so it's now a, I can't remember what it is, but now it's called a thick-billed something as opposed yeah. to being named for that person. Instead of like Nuttles Woodpecker or something. Yeah. That's like, you exactly. Know. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's a painful yeah. process for a lot of people, I yeah. think. We, we've it, seen it that in Buffalo. We, had, we used to have a little island called Squaw Island. That's but right. What, oh, what is yeah. it called now? Free, or? Uh, Unity Island. Unity Island. Yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, in our last episode, Indian pipe. Right. Oh, now yeah, it's right. called ghost pipe or people ghost are, plant. People yeah. are recommending that we refer to it as ghost pipe. Instead. Ghost, oh, ghost pipe. Ghost pipe. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 Which I think I can make the change. I just have to remember to do yeah, it. Yeah. So. All right. So, Arthur, this seems like a good time. I know you wanted to show us around the building a little bit. Sure. All right. So, would you mind doing that now? I'd love to. All right. So, right now we're in the library. 
Yes. Right. Ooh, it just opened up a lot now. <laughs> yeah, you stepped just like another foot away from the mic, and, and uh, it really opened up. All right, so we have uh, a beautiful view of the woods, and there, the property here, there's what, about 20 acres? 27 acres. 27 acres, and there's a trail that people can go out on. There's a couple different nature trails, and this was meant to emulate an Adirondack Lodge. Oh. So it really has this rustic cathedral-like feel. Yes. So we have the library here yeah. and the extended vaulted ceilings. And folks are familiar with the great camps in the exactly. Adirondacks. Right. It seems like a great camp. That right. And we really yeah. refer to this entire campus as a sanctuary. It's a nature preserve, which is a refuge. The building itself is a sanctuary. It is meant to inspire and sort of elevate the spirit and kind of open your heart and your mind to the beauty of the artwork that we have here. That's a beautiful space. Definitely. Yeah, I love the tall ceilings, that, especially this spot we're in right now. It's completely open all the way up through the second floor. You go all the way to the ceiling here. So, All right, so where are you going to take us? I'm going to take you to the Anderson Gallery. Okay. We're going to go past a facsimile of Audubon's famous portfolio, uh, oh. printed back in 1839. We have several different copies. So if there's a story where uh, someone had mentioned, hey, um, Roger Torrey Peterson, you know, you're the, you're the next Audubon. He goes, no, I'm the first Roger Torrey Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I, I think all folks like this, they are not without their appropriate degree of ego. Sure. Right. Right. <laughs> so we're going to go by here. We also have some live specimens here. We have a hellbender. Oh, cool. Which my parents still don't fully believe actually exists in the world, <laughs> right. but it is a thing, and as you know, it's a rare species, and right. there was a breeding program, and we happen to be able to get a few of them mm -hmm. to demonstrate and just show people, because most, most no one is going to see one actually in the wild. Right. right. So is that um, the uh, Buffalo Zoos program, or, or the, I, I thought that they were raising some there for the breeding, but... It was a broader research program amongst um, a native tribe as well as several zoos. Okay. And anyways, Tuan will be able to fill you in on that. Okay. So we actually have some folks here in the gallery right now. Okay. So I'm gonna take you off into sure. the other yeah. gallery. So folks, as we said, this is open to the public. So we're gonna hear the public in the background. So uh, the current exhibition is uh, Birds in Bronze by Stefan Savides. He's an Oregon artist. And he began his career as a max master taxidermist. So he did that for years and he, I think it's safe to say, really got to know birds from the inside out. And then always wanted to be a fine artist and eventually segued into these bronze sculptures. So again, there's a nice parallel there with Roger Torrey Peterson, who began, let's say, as an illustrator, but always aspired to be a fine artist. And we have examples of both here. So we have uh, complementing the bronze bird sculptures of Savides some of Roger Torrey Peterson's field guide art. So those are those very simplified images to help identify things in the field. And then alongside that, we have some of Roger Torrey Peterson's fine art. Again, I don't want to accentuate that <laughs> distinction, but you can see that there is yeah. clearly a difference. Right. Some got, look like field guide pages and some look like paintings. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah. So you've got the pheasant there in its natural habitat alongside the pheasant in flight of Stefan Savides. Mm -hmm. So folks, we've entered a, uh, maybe a 30 by 30 room and there's pedestals taking up the, the middle of the room and on those pedestals are sculptures. Uh, most of them look like they're life-size almost, right? They are all life-size, or most of them anyways, yeah. Okay. So we have about 30 bronze sculptures here on display. And interesting too, because Savides, um, Stefan, we had a lovely conversation with him the other day and he talked about the essence of his artwork, even though, let me make this distinction, as a taxidermist, he wanted to make sure it was absolutely exact, every feather in place, the detail was important. 
as a sculptor though, again, sort of paralleling Roger, that it's not important to put every feather in place because right. he talks about mm -hmm. this is art, it's not illustration. Right. So again, it's just interesting to have another artist to have his take on the difference between exactitude, illustration, and a freer expression, which gives you the essence of the animal without getting every, every detail, detail right. Yeah. They're beautiful too. I mean, I think the only two that I see that aren't obviously life-size is I mean, you have the pelicans, which uh, I've mm -hmm. never seen a pelican this small. They would be pretty adorable <laughs> if they were that small, though. And then, um, uh, well, and then the, the ducks there. But yeah. but other than that, I think everything else, like the, yeah, he has, the great he has blue hummingbirds, heron the yeah. yeah, great blue heron. They're beautiful. Yeah, they're, everything's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And I love the pelicans in particular because juxtaposed against uh -huh. Peterson's, this, according to some, is the apex of his work. This is the most beautiful, fine art representation oh, yeah. of pelicans. And he did it when I think it was, when he was in his 80s. And again, wow. I just love the fact that as an artist, he was never done. You know, I mean, this is a lifetime endeavor. Um, and matter of fact, we have in our collection a plate that he was working on for yet another edition of the Field Guide. So again, he didn't need it for money. He didn't need it for reputation. It was just the Love thing Jody. you do, right? Mm -hmm. And he virtually died in the harness, <laughs> and we have the incomplete field guide plate. But again, wow. it's just yeah. after all those years, you're still looking at nature more carefully, trying to translate right. that right. onto the plate. I mean, it's to me, it's just phenomenally inspirational that, and a reminder that art study, nature study is a lifetime endeavor. Sure. You can do it to the day you decide to give it up. Well, <laughs> we've had people mm -hmm. ask us, you know, in our podcast, are you ever going to run out of topics? And... <laughs> 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 never. It's never going to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if listeners wanted to check out Savidi's work, uh -huh. is is there a way they could do that through your website, or you know, we can post information? But sure. So they can go to the website, and we've got information there about all our events. So this is a place where you can do yoga on Saturday morning. You can do <laughs> plant walks. You can do bird walks, and we have guided tours of the exhibition. And then you're just free to roam here. So we're open Wednesday through Sunday. 10 to 4 on Wednesday through Saturday, and then Sundays 1 to 5. So again, this is a place where, again, to accentuate, it's it's a sanctuary. So just come and be here and let the power of art, let the power of nature, let the power of that synthesis just work its magic on you. You're going to love it here. Beautiful. Well, folks, we can't recommend enough that you come here. We'll put links to the Institute and everything that's going on here on our website. And Arthur, we can't thank you enough for giving up a chunk of your busy day to spend some time with us and shed some light for the audience on Roger Tory Peterson. We're Mecca for field guys. It's great to talk to the field guy guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> but folks, don't go away because we're going to be meeting another one of the staff members in just a moment. Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed part one. Now that you know Roger Tory Peterson's background and what the Institute is all about, join us for part two. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, in that part, we take a walk through the Institute's woods with Tuan Leanders, the Institute's Senior Director of Science and Conservation. Our wide-ranging conversation covers a lot of ground, and we think it's one you won't want to miss. Tuan, he's like the Indiana Jones of conservation, so check it out. And as always, thank you for listening.